I want you to I want to remind you of what the key verse of this whole section is, and it's the last verse, verse 42. And if you haven't underlined it yet or highlighted it on your electronic media, uh, I think it's a great one to underline or highlight. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And then 42, the one to underline, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Nothing stopped them. Nothing stopped them. Prison didn't stop them. Official oppression didn't stop them. Threats of death didn't stop them. Pain didn't stop them. And our question for last week was, what stops me from sharing, excuse me, what stops me from sharing my faith? The question for today is just a little bit different, and that is, how far does my commitment go? How far does my commitment go? Now, before we get into verse 30, I want to bring something to your attention. In verse 29, where we ended last week, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Now, when I first started in the ministry a long, long time ago, four decades ago, I started in the ministry, persecution for being a believer was almost theoretical. It's like we would teach and we would teach passages like this and say, well, we're just fortunate in America. We don't have to worry about that. We We may be shamed by our friends or something, but it doesn't get worse than that. Folks, it's getting worse. Just this week, a teacher, and, and, and uh, uh, it, it goes right with verse 29, just this week a teacher in Virginia was paid, was put on paid administrative leave for standing up for a biblical principle. And in his words, I'm a teacher, but I serve God first. And they put him on administrative leave to decide what they would do with him. Would he continue in his position or would he lose his position because he was standing up for a biblical value? And you can look it up on the internet. I won't go any further into it than that except to pray that what was once theoretical is now becoming real. What was once theoretical is now becoming real. And who knows what you and I, what stand you and I will have to take for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ what stand you you and I will have to take for the biblical truth. For the biblical truth. And so the question is, will we stand? Will we stand? Well, verse 30, the apostles continue, uh, and in a sense they're answering their accusers, but in a sense, they're, they're witnessing to their accusers. I find it interesting how in the midst of their explaining themselves, they are really witnessing to the Sanhedrin, witnessing to the religious leaders. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. 
Their message was the same as it has been since the day of Pentecost. You killed Jesus, they say to the religious leaders. God raised Him from the dead. God exalted Him to His own right hand. Exalted Him to become Prince and Savior. Now, Prince is kind of unusual name for Jesus in the Scripture. Usually the word translated here, Prince, is translated author. It's found four times, two times in Acts, two times in Hebrew, and it's more often translated author rather than Prince. They had killed the Savior. God raised Him from the dead. God exalted Him, made Him Prince and Savior. And that simply means, as one writer said, that He occupied the place of supreme power. He occupied the place of supreme power. He was the leader. He was the source of life and the source of salvation. God made Him so as God put His stamp of approval on what Jesus Christ has, had done. Now, there are a couple of words I want to look at in this, this uh, particular section of chapter 5. God exalted Him to His own right hand as Prince and Savior, that He might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. I want to look for a moment at repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a commonly misunderstood word in the Scripture. I don't know how many times I've heard some preachers say, if you want to be saved, you've got to repent of your sins. Is that scriptural? No, it's not. You know who are told in the Scripture to repent of their sins? Believers are told to repent of their sins. Not unbelievers. Not unbelievers. Repentance is commonly misunderstood, commonly misused by believers, commonly misused even by preachers who ought to know better. What is repentance? Well, Larry Moyer, who heads up Eventel, which is a great evangelistic ministry out of Dallas, Texas, he, he had some great things to say. I just want to share with you what he said about repentance. He said this, Repentance is essential to salvation. However, repentance, when used in an evangelistic context in Scripture, means to change your mind about whatever is keeping you from trusting Christ and trust Him to save you. That, in an evangelistic context, that's what repentance means. The very word itself just simply means to change your mind. And in the context of evangelism, it doesn't mean I feel sorry for my sin, because how does an unbeliever feel sorry for something he doesn't accept? It doesn't mean to feel sorry for my sin. It means to change my mind about whatever is keeping me from trusting Christ and to trust Him. To change my mind about whatever is keeping me from trusting Christ and to trust Him. Moyer points out there are different objects for the word repentance in Scripture. Sometimes it's idols are the object of repentance. Sometimes dead works, sin, particular sins, God, or sometimes it's a wrong view of Christ. When an individual has changed his mind about whatever is keeping him from trusting Christ and trusts Him, to save him, both repentance and faith have taken place. 
So in the context of evangelism, in the context of sharing your faith, in the context of sharing my faith, we don't call people to repent of their sins in the sense that they should feel sorry for their sin. We call them to repent in the sense that they need to change their mind about what they are, what's keeping them from trusting Christ. It may be that they don't understand who he is. It may be that they need to acknowledge that he's the Lord. He is God incarnate. So in that context, we call people to repentance in the sense of changing their mind about whatever is keeping them from trusting Christ and trust him to save them. Now, he also said something interesting, I thought, he said this, why do we often make the message more difficult? Could it be that we begin to share more about the Bible and less about the gospel? We begin to talk to lost people about how to live the Christian life before we've explained how to enter the Christian life. I think that's true. I think he's really gotten something there. We begin to explain people how to live the Christian life before they have even entered the Christian life. He said here, Moyer said, could it be that we often forget the real message? A person lost in sin needs to hear the good news of Christ. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the gospel right there. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Ten words. Ten words. Christ, no, that's <laughs> ten words. I find myself going like that. No, 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 it's that. I know how to count. I was thankful it wasn't above 10. I didn't want to take my shoes off. Uh, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. As Moyer says, as you, uh, the Bible contains 66 books, but the Gospel contains just 10 words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. By the way, if you want to know where that comes from, you tell me, where does it come from? Where, where in the Scripture does it come from? 1 Corinthians? All right, you got 15, that's it. 1 Corinthians 15, that's where it comes from if you want to know. That was the first word I wanted to look at. The second word is the word forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness of sins. The word for forgive in Greek is aphiemi. Aphiemi. And it's a really interesting word. And what it means is to cancel a debt or pardon a crime. To cancel a debt or, or pardon a crime. In other words, scripturally speaking, forgiveness in, uh, toward God is that sin is seen as a moral and spiritual debt. Sin is seen as a moral and spiritual debt. And when we come by faith to God through Jesus Christ, His Son, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save us, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God cancels our debt. Now you talk about being debt-free. That's it right there. That's it. God cancels our debt. When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. 
the word in Greek that's translated, it is finished, was found some years ago on papers, papyri, and they were tax statements or tax bills, and written on those tax bills was this word translated, it is finished. That means Jesus is saying the debt of sin is paid in full. You see, it's an amazing thing, isn't it, salvation? Isn't it an amazing thing, what God has done? He's given to Christ what Christ didn't deserve so that he could give to us what we don't deserve. God gave to Christ what he didn't deserve, the punishment for our sin. That God might be able to give to us what we don't deserve, salvation, being saved. Well, that's repentance and forgiveness. Now, the other side of, of witness is, of course, to share my faith, not just, not just to share the gospel, which is the heart of our witness, but to share my faith. And uh, some of you may remember, he's been out of the limelight for quite some time, but Horl, Oral excuse me, Hershiser was a great baseball player and a Christian. And in the men's devotional Bible, he shares something of his testimony. He says, I'm not one to wear my faith on my sleeve. Christians can do a disservice to unbelievers by being obnoxious or judgmental. I'm a chapel leader and have been since my second year in the minors. People know where I'm coming from without my having to harp on it all the time. I know that the message of Christ offends because it calls sin, sin, and says we are all sinners. There's no way to soften that truth. It's jarring and, and, excuse me, and can alienate people until they begin to realize that it's true. My pushing it down everyone's throat will not make it easier for them to investigate what it's all about. He said, this is what I do. I just tell people about God naturally when opportunities arise or when I'm asked. Boy, doesn't that take the pressure off? Doesn't that take the fear off? I just tell people naturally... about God, about His salvation, when opportunities arrive or when I ask. So many methods of evangelism tells us that you got to hide and wait until you hear that magic word that they say that gives you an in to tell them about Christ. So you're not really having a conversation. You're not listening. You know, conversation is when one person talks and another one listens. And then that person talks and another one and the other one listens. That's a conversation. What we're doing is we're listening until we get that in. So we can lay the gospel on them. I like what Hershiser said. I just tell people about God naturally when opportunities arise or when I'm asked. So I think what's the answer? The answer is that you and I Pray God for opportunities. Lord, help me, help me not to force the gospel into a conversation. Help me to know those moments, know those times. And, and you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I know you do. I know you know what I'm talking about. There are times when you share your faith 
and, and, and everything feels wrong, everything feels forced, everything feels like, boy, I wish this conversation was over. Why did I start? And there are other times when it just goes so smoothly. So the apostles witness to the authorities. And verse 32, they said, we are witnesses of these things. We are witnesses of what Jesus did. We are witnesses of these words, the words that they are sharing. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit because they were dominated by the Spirit of God, because they were under the control of the Spirit of God. Not only were they witnessing, but the Spirit was witnessing through them. That's the way it should work. That's the way it should work. F.F. Bruce, great student of the Word of God, said this, In these words we mark again the apostolic community's consciousness of being possessed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit to such a degree that they were his organ of expression. That is, when you and I yield to the Spirit of God, when you and I allow the Holy Spirit of God to dominate our thoughts, our intents to dominate us, the Holy Spirit witnesses through us. Isn't that an awesome thought? Isn't that a great thought? Well, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. That is the authorities. They wanted to put the apostles to death. Interestingly enough, in the face, one writer said, of incontestable evidence of the truthfulness of Christianity, they were willfully blind. They just heard the evidence. They just heard the witness of these apostles. They just heard the testimony of these apostles, and in the face of that, they rejected it. And folks, what we need to remember, and it's so important for us to remember this, unbelief is not a matter of a lack of evidence. It's a moral decision. Unbelief is not a result of a lack of evidence. There is plenty of evidence for the truth of the Bible. There is plenty of evidence but as the writer said, in the face of uncontestable, uncontestable evidence of the truthfulness of Christianity, they were willfully blind. It's not more information that people need. It is to apply what they have heard and put their faith in Christ. Uh, Robert Morgan wrote a little book about apologetics about the defense of the faith and he said this years ago when I became when I began pastoring I faced an unexpected problem each Sunday after preaching to my small congregation I would go home wondering if my sermons were true what if Christianity was just a grand hoax what if it was all a myth these doubts he said drove me to study apologetics 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope you have. I found apologetics, the defense of the truth of Christianity. I found that it demonstrates that our faith is not a blind leap into the dark, but a sensible step into the light. What a statement that is. What a statement that is. Apologetics demonstrates that our faith is not a blind leap into the dark, but a sensible step into the light. He goes on to say, faith, however, is not foolishness. It is not the man who started across a pond of thin ice by saying, I just believe I have faith that this ice will hold me up. Morgan said his faith is all wet and soon he will be. Unrealistic faith. And this is so true. Unrealistic faith collapses in college classrooms when challenged. It cringes when hearing about newly discovered proof, in quotes, of evolution. It harbors nagging doubts when facing a crisis. But genuine faith is believing on the basis of powerful evidence, not in spite of inadequate evidence. To be valid, Christianity must be logical and real with a provable quality to it. The body of evidence for the truth of Christianity is staggering and I believe the truth of Christianity can be established to a 99% level of certainty. The remaining 1% is the step of faith you take when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. They had the evidence right in front of them and they rejected it. They rejected it. Well, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, verse 34, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. He addressed the authorities, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody. I love that phrase, he claimed to be somebody. So He was claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men you will only find yourself fighting against God. As one writer said in the face, uh, rather Gamaliel was an honored Pharisee, the writer said this, the most, he was the most illustrious rabbi of the day. He was the head of the school of Hillel, the leader of the Pharisees. He gives them two examples of why they shouldn't overreact. Thutis, nothing more is known of him. And Judas the Galilean, he rebelled because of taxation against Rome and he was killed. So Gal Gamaliel's conclusion is, let's just wait and see. Let's wait and see. As Ryrie said, he suggested dodging the issue, whereas he might have suggested investigating the claims of the message. 
Well, his speech persuaded them, verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And you know, that just rolls off the tongue as we read it, right? What did they decide? They didn't decide anything. They decided to put off a decision. But in the meantime, they would have them flogged. Do you have a sense of what that was? These 12 apostles would endure flogging. Now, we all have a sense of what flogging is. We all have an idea what it is. And until I studied this passage once again and ran across a description by Dr. Jerry Hollinger of flogging, which he found in the Mishnah, where the whole procedure was laid out and it sent a shiver on my spine to think how easily we can read over those words that they had them flogged and not understand what was truly involved. Let me share quickly. Flogging was a barbaric punishment which sometimes caused the victim to die. The Mishnah describes the process, Hollinger says. Then he quotes from the Mishnah. How do we lash him? His two hands are bound on each side of the pillar and the minister of the gathering, that's a nice way to say the guy that's going to hold the whip, seizes his clothing. If the clothing are torn, they are torn, so be it. And if they become unstitched, they are unstitched, so be it, until his heart is uncovered. And the stone is placed behind him, and the administrator of the gathering stands on the stone, and a strap from the calf is in his hand, doubled over once into two straps, and a second time into four straps, and there are two other straps go up and down with it during the lashing. The strap's handle is a handbreadth wide, and it, the strap, is a handbreadth wide, and its tip reaches to the mouth of his stomach. They were looking to do real damage, folks. And he lashed a third of the lashes in his front and two-thirds from his back, and he is not lashed neither standing nor sitting, but rather leaning over, based on Deuteronomy 25, 2. And the one who hits, hits with one hand with all his strength. And while he is hitting the victim, they would have a reader who would read from Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 29 and Psalm 78. If the reader reached the end of his readings, he would go back and start reading them all over again. Then the Mishnah says, if he, the one being last, died during his whipping, the whipper is not responsible for his death. If the whipper added an extra strap to the whip and the sinner died, the whipperer, whipperer, whipper rather, is sent into exile. If the sinner either soiled or if the sinner either soiled or wet himself, he is exempt from further lashes. Rabbi Yehuda says a man is only exempt if he soils himself but a woman is exempt if she wets herself. All 12 apostles went through that procedure. 
And they were told not to speak in the name of Jesus again, and they were let go. Verse 41, at that point, I would think that it's time to have your wounds bound up, right? It's time to go recover. But not them. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What kind of commitment do you and I have? How far would we go to uphold the truth? Will we forfeit our jobs? Would we go to prison? Would we be flogged or punished in some other way? What did the apostles do? They rejoiced in verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let me close with this. This was in, if you read the Daily Bread, you saw this about a week ago. Helen Rosevere, an English missionary physician in the African Congo, was taken prisoner by rebels during the Simba Rebellion in 1964. Beaten and abused by her captors, she suffered terribly. In the days that followed, she found herself asking, is it worth it? As she began to ponder the cost of following Jesus, she sensed God speaking to her about it. Years later, she explained to an interviewer when the awful moments came during the rebellion and the price seemed too high to pay. The Lord seemed to say to me, change the question. It's not, is it worth it? It's, am I worthy? She concluded that in spite of the pain she had endured, always the answer is yes, he is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these courageous people filled controlled by your spirit who spoke out in the worst of circumstances and could not be stopped. May that be said of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.